Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show, The Nation Talks. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 minutes. Thanks to you and the folks behind the scenes who produce this show, we're closing in on 89. That's 89 shows. I think that's pretty good. This success, as I say every week, but it's worth repeating, is down to the huge efforts of the India Life team behind the scenes. Now they need your support. The crowdfunder, which is presently available, you can go to it, hopefully after you've seen the show tonight, it's scarcely 60% funding. This has huge consequences for this show and for all the other shows that India Live is supporting. So I would appreciate very much when we're all through tonight, if you go there and however much or however little you please help the crowdfunder. Thanks, I appreciate that. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. In terms of the huge number of parties and the blackmail uh, suggestions that took place in what we must now call Downing Ken Street, uh, Boris Johnson's explanations are fascinating. First of all, he said the parties did not happen. If they did happen, he knew nothing about it. Later, he said, yes. He didn't know about it, but it wasn't technically a party because there wasn't any cake. Then, okay, the cake is discovered. Now it is a party or was a party, but he wasn't told that parties were against the law at that time. Well, heavens, that sounds convincing to me. I don't know about you. Thanks for joining us this evening. Tonight, we are talking to Jenny Eels. Why? Well, because Jenny is an enthusiast for Scottish history. She has compiled the most fascinating information and material about Scottish history generally, but around about the Acts of Union in particular and other times. You'll be absolutely fascinated. Do stick with us because you will really find this really, as well as entertaining, educational. And along the way, you'll hear about Jenny's journey from being a no voting Tory to yes. So Jenny is here for a full hour. Now to our guest tonight, The Nation Talks to Jenny Yields. Thanks for joining us, Jenny. How are you? I am great. How are you? Very good. Very good. So you'll be talking about history tonight. But first of all, tell us your journey from a, a Tory supporting no voter to yes. How did that happen? I think I was a no voting Tory for the re same reason as the majority. Kind of still are. Those that, that have that tendency, that inclination. I was brought up that way. Um, I was told from a very young age that uh, if Scotland was to go out alone, then it would fail rapidly. Uh, we would devolve into little more than a third world country. Uh, we'd not be able to do it for ourselves. So because you're told by people in authority, parents and what have you, you grow up believing it. So you, you don't know that there's another route. You don't know the facts if you're not prepared to look them up. So when the referendum was called, and it was pending, I think I, I knew that I was going to vote no because of my beliefs at the time, not my knowledge at the time. I had no knowledge at the time. It was my beliefs that were going to drive me that way. But uh, at the same time, I'd always been really into history, Victorian London, ancient Greece, Rome, etc. And I thought, well, maybe I should get to know Scotland before I make this decision in 2014. I'd done an OU course, Arts and Humanities, and I'd learned from through that that you could obtain primary source material, very low cost. So I started to obtain pre-20th century Scottish history books, folklore, art, because I wanted to know about Scotland. I wanted to know what people had thought of their own country prior to the World Wars. I feel like the World Wars gave quite a lot of propaganda, centralising propaganda, where Scotland was part of England, basically. We were all one people, one nation. We all had the same goals and aspirations. And it's, it's not correct, but that was the propaganda delivered through the World Wars. So um, I thought I'll aim before that to get a kind of unvarnished view of what Scots thought Scotland. And just learning our history changed my mind. So I voted yes in 2014, just from reading the history books, just getting to know Scotland, realising that we could do it and there was nothing stopping us. There was nothing to suggest that we would devolve into a third world nation. Um, that 
there was no reason for that. There's no reason we couldn't go alone. So uh, that's how Random Scottish History started. I didn't want to give people my opinions. I don't feel like anyone's opinion is able to change the minds of anyone else. I think people should only have their minds changed by the facts of a thing. So I just put out the books as I got them, the information as I receive it, in the hopes that just through learning about their country, and maybe other no-boaters will also realise, actually, Scotland's a pretty good wee place, and there's no reason why independence wouldn't suit us right down to the ground. Which books and publications have you produced so far, and how can people get a hold of those? Well, they're all published through Amazon. Publishers don't want to touch what I do because I don't tell stories. Um, I'm not an author. I don't write opinion pieces. Uh, You don't get my views on a thing. What I'm publishing is the first-hand source material. tends to be newspaper articles that I go to because a lot of people write into the newspapers with exactly how they're feeling on a certain issue. And it, in collecting all of those, it gives a really nice round picture of the sentiment of the time and why people did and thought the way they did. So you can obtain them all via Amazon. I guess they're all published through Kindle, on Kindle paperback. There's a couple of hardback versions of the Treaty of Union articles and our newest Square Mile Murders compilation, which is all a bit morbid, but I some folk are into that. All of the information is free on the website. You do not have to pay for our publications for the information. I don't believe in paying for information. I think it should be free. So all of the information I collect is available on the site. If you buy our books, what you're really paying for is Alex's art, because there's art throughout that doesn't exist on the website that he's done specifically for the publications. So. You don't have to buy our books to get the information, you know. <laughs> I'd like to encourage people to buy your books. I, I know. <laughs> I just want to encourage people to read. <laughs> <laughs> in some senses, it's a bit like a show and a bit like Indie Live. It's, there's no charge for watching this show tonight. We exist on people's goodwill. So we're not like the BBC. There's not some sort of poll tax <laughs> yeah. that provides Kevin and I and the rest of the gang with some luxurious lifestyle in Barbados. <laughs> Yeah, just, I'm sorry, guys, that's not the way it happens here. We, we, we subsist we subsist, and we we exist on, on your goodwill. So please go, you see the details on the website, off the website. Go there and check out for yourself. Now, you mentioned two things. You mentioned the square mile murders. Perhaps we'll come back to that. Tell us a little about, a bit about what you discovered about the Acts of Union in 1707. The most interesting thing that I discovered from researching the Treaty of Union articles was difference in viewpoint from today's pro-unionists, they're British nationalists, uh, the pro-unionists of today. They see Britain as one entity that cannot be divided into its component parts. The pro-unionists of the prior to the 20th century, they were pro-unionist Scottish nationalists, and they were very proud of being Scottish nationalists. Uh, They saw all of the issues with the union, they weren't blind to the fact that it was such an, in, an unequal deal that we'd managed to acquire for ourselves. They saw that we were underrepresented, overtaxed, underfunded. These were very blatant evils throughout the union, along with centralisation, which had a lot to answer for. But they could also see the benefits of the union. They could see that should it be equal, should we get what we were owed from it, then Scotland could benefit from the union. But Westminster have never allowed it to be that way. Westminster have always wanted Westminster to benefit from the union. And that was the problem. So uh, the pro-unionists of prior to the 20th century wanted home rule for Scotland. They wanted what Scots had always wanted. They wanted a federal union in which local legislation could be achieved. They, they understood local legislation was the way forward rather than legislation coming from a for, what was effectively a foreign parliament hundreds of miles away because they didn't know Scotland or its people. So, you know, it's, it's a very different change now. They, they could promote the union with its benefits to Scotland while still seeing the negatives. Today's unionists 
refuse to see the negatives of the union. They're blind to the negatives and they actually make it so that the only argument they have for the union are negatives about Scotland. Scotland can't do it alone. We're too wee, too poor, etc. We've all heard the, the rhetoric. So the very fact that they no longer have a pro positive case for the union tells us they're failing and makes me wonder how they have anybody voting for them anymore. Would it be fair to say, Jenny, that the old unionists that you're talking about were Conservatives first with a capital C and unionists with a small U, whereas the present day, and we'll have to call them Tories, are unionists with a capital U and Conservatives with a small C. Yeah. Or do you see that's on the cusp of a change? Because we know that the Tories in Scotland are very divided. There's a civil war going on slightly underneath the surface, but sometimes it pops above the surface. Well, the pro-unionists prior to Trent's century, they weren't just Conservatives. They covered all of the political parties. Okay. Um, Scotland has always been more liberal-minded than the English population when it comes to politics. Okay. So it wasn't just the, the Tories, the Tory okay. Scots that were vote, voting that way and were pro-union. Okay. The majority were pro-union, but they were also pro-Scotland, which yeah. is the difference between those now to, to them before, you know? Yeah. Of course, to be pro-Scotland now with a Scottish Parliament, you would have to put forward progressive policies in the Scottish Parliament. And that's harder to do than just standing up saying you're all rubbish and the country's rubbish and yeah. you're part of it being rubbish, you know, etc. I want to a couple of questions, if I may. Uh, Stephen Kelly is saying, uh, he's asking what you would like to see taught in schools about Scottish history that perhaps isn't taught right now. Well... We were all taught about the Tudors and the Wars of the Roses, and we're all taught about Henry VIII and his wives, and we're all taught about Elizabeth and the Spanish Armada, but we're not taught the Scottish context of these events. We're not taught who was on the throne of Scotland at these points and what they were up to and what they were doing. We're not taught that while Elizabeth was coming up against the Spanish, the Spanish were seeking Scotland's help against her and that we were considering it. And how would Elizabeth have fared against the Spanish Armada on one side and Scotland on the other? There's a Scottish context that's been eliminated from our histories. Yeah. But yeah. you had, even back in the 19th century, you had true patriots like the, the Reverend David McCree. He went up to the Dundee School Board and he remonstrated very strongly against the Scottish publishers that were publishing Scottish history textbooks for Scottish schools, where the words Britain and British were made England and English throughout, which made for a very strange reading in, in some of the quotes that he was reading out, where England has managed to do all this stuff alone without the help of Scotland and the nations to which she had created unions with. Um, England was really making itself the, this is what I mean when I'm talking about centralisation. So our history books were tainted from the get-go. They, they made that happen very quickly the whole British, Britain, England, English thing. So our history should be taught with a Scottish context and from a Scottish perspective, purely because it's being taught in Scotland and our children should know their history, you know. Is it the case that the Act of Union, a number of, a majority, perhaps all of Scottish MPs, shortly after the Act of Union, voted for its repeal? Yeah, 1713, uh, that was the Earl of Findlater, we headed that one, because Westminster had already started encroaching on some of the, the acts. Um, I think it was the grain taxation, I think it was to do with alcohol uh, and grain taxation. And the Earl of Findlater, I think he, he saw the writing on the wall. He could see that if they were already trying to make changes so shortly after the union had been concluded that they would probably want to nip that in the bud and let's just let you know escape this because uh, we've obviously left ourselves too open yeah. to these changes yeah. so he tried to repeal it and i think he only lost by five votes or something in the house of lords so he came very close to repealing the act of union oh. in 1713 um, now, you see that's something that ought to be in the history books it's in our history books yeah, but it's, I mean, I, I doubt if there's one single person out, outside of, uh, out with Scotland who has the slightest information about that. Well, that the Act of Union was almost repealed six yeah. years after its uh, creation. 
Yeah. Fascinating. We've summarised all of this into our Scotland in Union oh. uh, pamphlet that we just there brought out. So the Treaty of Union articles, uh, there's a synopsis pamphlet that you can obtain for as cheap as Amazon will let us sell it. And it's called Scotland in the Union. It contains all of these wee relevant tidbits. Well, th there you are, folks. But everybody watching tonight who is interested in Scottish history, particularly around about the Acts of Union, we had a discussion and a programme show last week about what can be done and, and, and if the Act of Union can somehow be used uh, in, in another uh, to change the constitution. Who knows, we, we can maybe come back to that. Alistair Bryan is suggesting that this unionist slant continues now in our institutions. He's talking about museums and galleries. He, he reckons they're all run by London-centric historians and with a unionist slant. Would you agree with Alistair? Yes, I think that centralisation has permeated more of our culture and society than you would expect. I think if we were to suddenly remove the British perspective from out of Scotland, you would notice immediately the huge change. Uh, it's because it's so insidious that you don't really notice it so much. But I was talking to Eddie Reader about centralisation on Twitter. She'd mentioned, so I was like, oh, it's a prime example of centralisation. Then right after Rhys Mogg did that whole World War propaganda speech she did in Westminster just recently, where he's talking about one nation, one people, etc. And I shared it, I was like, hey, this is exactly what we were talking about with the centralisation. They just want us to forget that we have our own traditions and culture and history out with our union with England. We, ha we have a history that belongs to us alone. But it doesn't include them. It raises an interesting point, though, because you've just said a couple of things tonight that I was unaware of until I, I read your material about the Act of Union. It was almost repealed. So you have to ask yourself, since education in Scotland is entirely under the aegis of the Scottish government, why does this persist? Because it's so insidious. Honestly, like to, to remove it would be removing the needles from the haystack, I think they have a big job in their hands to subvert centralisation, because it is everywhere, including, obviously, the education. I don't know. I think if parents could get on board with the education of their children, if parents could make sure that their children know this information and know their history, even if they're not being taught it in schools, maybe bedtime stories could involve Scottish stories from history. I mean, it really, I think it could be a grassroots thing, the spread of information, rather than relying on the Scottish government to completely change uh, the textbooks and the literature that pupils have access to. Maybe people could do it for themselves. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, that, that's, that's why I want to make all the, the information as accessible as yeah. possible and, and put it out in as many platforms as possible. And um, people that don't enjoy reading a thing, I've done readings on YouTube of our, our publications. So you don't even have to read a thing, you can just listen to it, you know. I figure if we can get the information out there on as many platforms as possible, then people can just find this stuff out for themselves um, and not rely on the educational institutions yeah. to do that for I, them. I think that's a key point. I mean, you know, formal education has always been important. And I suspect neither you nor I would say otherwise, but it seems to me because of centralisation, because of the pressures that come, the, the media no longer addresses issues, you know, it's all about if it bleeds, it leads, it's not about informing, it's about sometimes manipulation, so it's down to the individual, See, you know, I think I agree with you, to go out there and they've got the huge advantage now that people like you have provided a different database so to complement that work, it seems to me the individual should go out there, seek out that information and utilise it themselves and make sure other people get to know about it. So I would encourage everyone tonight to go to the site, get a hold of uh, Jenny's book. It's absolutely fascinating material. You wouldn't believe what you don't know, honestly, honestly. It's a bit like the Matrix. Once you take the red pill, it's gone. You, you, don't, you don't have the same nonsense anymore. Yeah. Here's a question. How many times... Do you reckon the act of union has been broken? 
technically hasn't been broken. It's been amended to suit Westminster. I was discussing this earlier. So you need to have a look at the Act of Union. So the wording of the, the varying articles often say that this thing is the way it is at the moment, but uh, Westminster feel that Scotland would be better governed with this change, um, that there could be better administration through this change, or then they're able to make amendments to the articles on the basis that it's for the benefit of the people of Scotland. But then we're relying on Westminster doing it for that reason and not just saying they're doing it for that reason. So it's really a gentleman's code we're relying on in terms of maintaining the Treaty of Union and it's the subversion of the articles that led to the 1713 attempt at repeal by Findlater. But it's also what led to the constant protests up until the 20th century uh, against centralisation and, and for a more equal union. That, that protest never stopped. The people of Scotland never stopped pursuing a more equal union from Westminster. Uh, and the hope was that when Ireland started uh, their case for home rule, that Scotland would be carried along with that and also gain home rule for itself. The Scots came out very strongly against it being granted to Ireland first, because then they wouldn't have the Irish representation to then back Scotland's bid for the same, and um, because Scotland fully backed Ireland's bid for for home rule, Ireland was given home rule, and I think it was the Palmerston government. He seemed like he was kind of on board with giving Scotland home rule, but it never happened for us, and um, because we're so underrepresented that. Uh, we couldn't make it happen for ourselves. Tell us about the monster petition. What is a, what was the monster petition? That was in like 1897, I think. Uh, Scots, hundreds of thousands of Scots from all walks of life, all political uh, viewpoints signed a petition to stop Westminster and people in authority from using uh, the terms England and English in place of Britain and British. The words Britain and British were inclusive. They uh, incorporated all of the countries of the Union. England is one of the countries in the Union and does, does, it does not denote the whole. It in no way refers to the whole. It refers to England always. So what they had, the people of the time had come to realise was that there are certain international treaties between Westminster and other foreign powers where the treaties between England and those powers, because they had used the word England instead of Britain. So there were actually a whole bunch of treaties that England, that Scotland had no part in, purely because of uh, their chosen wording uh, and the centralising tactics of that wording. Uh, it's for the same reason that I think that Americans uh, will still have a tendency to call Britain England, meaning all of us. You know, so they sent this huge petition. They called it the monster petition and they didn't do it. Um, they didn't describe it in terms of how many signatures. It was in length. It was in terms of yards long. Uh, and it was sent down to Lord Balfour uh, as the intermediary to then get it to Queen Victoria just shortly before her death. What came of that? We had the world wars and the centralising propaganda that basically made the population of Scotland super apathetic until the yep. 60s. It knocked every pro-Scotland Scottish nationalist thought out of everyone's heads for about 40 years. And then people started realising in the 60s, I think, oh, hang on a minute, we still don't have a decent deal in this union and we're still getting screwed by Westminster and we're still being overtaxed, we're, you know, and Scottish nationalism started to get going isn't, again. Isn't one of the I was going to say issues were one of the problems, it seems to me, in as much as Scottish education perhaps hasn't encompassed as much as what it ought to have done in the way you've just described. Education in England is even further along the spectrum of the misuse of the terms. I mean, I lived in, in Berkshire for 20 years. I never had anyone describe the country they lived in as Britain. Not once. Everyone said they lived in England. And even when that 
was out of context, i.e. they actually meant Britain. But these people were not malicious. Not one single person who used the word wrongly was ever malicious. They actually thought that the two terms were synonymous. There was no malice. That's what I got taught at school. I mean, <laughs> why would I want to use a clumsy word like Britain when the actual name of the country is England? It makes no sense. I mean, when you've got people in authority calling it that, then, yeah, I mean, it's your experience. If that's what you've grown up believing and hearing, then that's how you continue the thing. So yeah, I think it led to people like P.J. Woodhouse and his little aphorism. He said it. You're always able to distinguish between a ray of sunshine and a Scotsman with a grievance because so many of the Scots <laughs> immersed in that culture as I was. Uh, and you, you say, look, let me rectify what you just said. It sounds like a grievance. It sounds like, what's your problem? Yeah. You know, I mean, why are, you, why are you making this odd distinction? The best people that have ever answered that in my mind and for my researches are the Reverend David McRae that I've already mentioned uh, as having gone to the school board, etc. He wrote to the papers and he held lectures and he hosted rallies, pro-Scottish rallies and anti-centralisation rallies. Also William Burns, who was another Scottish patriot that was completely against centralisation. And they would retort to newspaper columnists who would use the terms England instead of Britain, etc. But they, they would answer it really nicely just as to how it's not a grievance. You're denying us our history and our culture. You're denying us inclusion. When you speak of Britain as England, you're denying us Scotland a share in that. You're denying us our place in the union. You're denying our effort towards um, Britain's colonies at the time, etc. Yeah. Uh, and in industrialisation, which was a huge part like happened in Scotland. I mean, yeah. Glasgow was the, the capital city of industrialisation at one point, but they were making use of all of that while denying us our, our rightful inclusion by not using the word person. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, though, to southern ears, it still sounds like pedantry. It does. Because unless you've got some background, like you and I have, it does sound... You know, like you're trying to split hairs. I mean, what's why are you getting upset about this? It's it's it's, it's no. worth mentioning. I can see from your point of view, you feel strongly about it. But I can't think why anyone else should feel strongly about it. I certainly don't. They might say to them that. Here's a question that's come in. Charles Smith is asking: Is it correct under the Act of Union that 1707 that both parliaments were to be closed and then a, a different body reconstitute or constituted that would serve the entire island? Was that not the case? Yes, that was supposed to... I mean, it certainly worded that way, but as everyone knows, the English Parliament just became the Parliament of Britain. It, it, it was the English Parliament that... There was no change. There was, no, there was nothing given by the English. They, they didn't give up anything. We had to give up our Parliament. We had to give up the... The people with money in the country, they all went down to London to, to take part in politics and they took all their money with them, you know. So England didn't have to concede anything, really, for the no. union. They didn't concede numbers in their parliament. They didn't concede the lords. I mean, they did make it so that no more Scottish lords were to be created. They, I think we were only to get 45 MPs yeah. representing us at start. That goes back to another thing someone else said about the act having changed um, by Westminster. Yes, things have changed, but had it not changed, then we would still be stuck with the 45 ministers representing us at Westminster. So in effect, <laughs> we've had to change that to get more representation. Jenny, listening to what you're saying, uh, it sort of puts this whole discussion about Devomax into context, because for Devomax to be in any way secure, i.e. in being sustainable, it would require a there to be a federal country. B, that Scotland's place within that federation could not be changed or modified, i.e. it was secure. Uh, and it would need a constitution to which the Scots could appeal should they be concerned about the way that the, the entire unitary process, uh, the, feder the federation was being, uh, was being operated. 
if you've got a group of people from 1700 who are not even prepared to set up the institutions required of them in the, in the act, they're never going to agree <laughs> to a federation of any kind because they never wanted it. And I'm not blaming them for this, by the way. I, I mean, if I, if I was a, a, a London politician in 1707, the Act of Union is exactly the act that I would have fought for yeah. because it gives me everything and it gives the other lot nothing yeah. except as I am prepared to tolerate. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it leaves me in complete control. And what does it cost me? Zip, just about. And I take away a oh, major yeah. problem. It was so a I'm terrible really to, I mean, you, you couldn't imagine the same, that, that same mentality if it, just, if it still exists, agreeing to any sort of constitution or federation of well, anything else. You're talking about Devo Max. Right now, Devo Max is just a snappy sounding term. Devo Max, to, to want Devo Max or to entertain it is to want an as yet unknown deal carrying unknown conditions and benefits granted by an as yet unknown party at Westminster that the majority of Scots is unlikely to have voted for. And I don't know why anyone would want all of those uncertainties. Home rule gives the Federalists uh, option that Scots wanted from the get-go. Home rule carries set conditions and benefits that can't be amended. It's, 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 it's already an established thing. Devo Max is just a snappy-sounding term for a whole bunch of uncertainties, and I'm not even entirely sure why people are talking about it. Were we not supposed to be riding high on Devo Max after a no vote in 2014? Are we not at present riding high on the laurels of Devo Max? To me, Devo Max is nonsense on stilts. It is nonsense. Because it's... apart from anything else, if you don't have a written constitution and you're completely reliant upon a piece of legislation out of Westminster, knowing and knowing as you look at that legislation that no, no, no parliament can bind its successor, you end up with a piece of paper which is worthless, yeah. absolutely worthless. Because the next parliament says, you know something, these guys, and it's mostly guys who were there before, made a terrible mistake in Scotland. So we're just going to junk it. And we'll have a new federation, which will take a very different form. You know? And you could do all of these things because you don't have a constitution. In other words, as we discussed earlier, the British constitution is whatever the government of the day with a working majority says it is. And that's why we've got Boris Johnson behaving badly and continuing to behave badly because he has no repercussions. Unless the Tory MPs decide to vote against him, which is not a constitutional, it's a protocol. It's just a, you know, protocols can be added, amended, discarded in circumstances. I, I don't understand why the whole Devo Max enthusiasm, <laughs> which is to me is so deeply flawed. I mean, fundamentally flawed. Anyway, I don't get it. I don't want to spend too much time on that. I would like to talk more about, just for a second, about you mentioned the open door process in one of your recent Facebook postings. And I've had a number of people say to me, I had no idea. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the open door process is? And well, that's um, someone else's project. But yeah, every so often cities hold open door days where you can get into buildings that you normally wouldn't into as a private citizen. Places like uh, underneath Central Station and the city chambers and things can be taken on tours from people who've worked there. It gives you a wee bit of an insight into the, the city. It's, I think it's a yearly thing. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how it's been going the last couple of years uh, just because of COVID, the pandemic. I think what I'd shared was a video uh, showing you the insides of these yeah. places purely because people weren't able to get out and about and get into these spaces because of the pandemic. But no, it's a fantastic idea and it, it is a yearly thing. You can Google search just open days, Glasgow open doors days, and it brings you up the schedule when they happen and what places are open on which days, et cetera, and you can book places. You know something, I would, I would implore everyone in the audience tonight to go and check that out mm. because it is truly fascinating. Yeah. You'd be amazed at the extraordinary places you walk past every day mm. in our city centres. They make your head spin, honestly. Really. The amount of incredible architecture that's in this. Um, it gives people to get 
it gives people a chance just to get in about the history and and there's no better place to do that than in the buildings where certain events took place. Well, history is conveyed in different ways. Yeah. And one of them is through buildings and architecture, etc. And it's not just Glasgow, is it? There are open elsewhere, to Edinburgh, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, other cities will hold open days too. Yeah, just Google the city that you're in or the, the city that interests you if you're, you're set on travelling. Um, I, I think they tend to do it on a yearly basis. It tends to be like a week out of a year that's set aside to, to open up these places. You mentioned when we were chatting before the show about the book by pro-unionists for pro-unionists. That's the Treaty of Union articles, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just find that just a fascinating concept. It was born out of an idea from author David Taylor. He had asked me if I had a way of sourcing correspondence from pro-unionists who weren't afraid to air their grievances with the union to out where they felt it was failing. And I told them I could absolutely do that because... Like just go to the papers. That's all newspapers are, is compiled correspondence, yeah. you know, and opinions and people writing in letters with their, their opinions and views. So um, that's how that project started. And uh, that's well, why I, I, it's 99.9% written by pro-unionists telling you how the union is failing Scotland. There you are, folks. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's an incredible uh, read, to be honest. It really I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, go- I'm going to send a your eye-opener. <laughs> I'm going to send a copy to the BBC. <laughs> you need to drop me your address. I'll send you a, a hardback copy. Out. I, I'd love that because it yeah. will allow, allow me to send it on uh, to that. Now, you mentioned earlier the Square Mile Murders. Yeah. What's that about? <laughs> Author Jack House in the 60s lumped four of Glasgow's murders together and called them the, the Square Mile of Murder. It was four murders that took place up in towards the west end of Glasgow. Uh, The first starting in 1857, that was Madeline Smith, uh, who killed uh, a Monsieur Longelier, apparently killed a Monsieur Longelier because she was found not guilty. Actually, it was not proven, that special Scottish verdict of not proven. Um, So she didn't entirely get away with it. Um, She was actually buried in a a very nondescript grave that gave just her new name of Lena Shea and just her date of death. Uh, and I think it's because she didn't want people, even after her death, being able to look her up, you know. But you have to tell us who this mysterious gentleman was. And Monsieur Longelier? Yeah, what a uh, name! He, he was her lover, uh, Emile Longelier, and she had uh, illicit trysts with him, which was very unseemly for a woman in society, brought up in society, to have a connection with a man who wasn't, he was just a, a warehouseman and uh, yeah, so she was offered a better deal, a better marriage with a Mr. Minnick and uh, she wanted to go for that because it was a better deal. And to that end, she offed her previous amour, but her letters really say it all. Uh, they out um, just how far that relationship went uh, and they were read out in court and it just it's horrible when doing the readings of these i had to like act for the letters oh it was cringeworthy it was so horrible reading them they were just the worst of mills and boone letters just just awful the next murder in 1862 is actually my favorite it's jess mclachlan she was found guilty of murdering her best friend jesse mcpherson she didn't kill her best friend Jesse McPherson's employer, James Fleming, who was in his 80s at the time, murdered her because he had made advances and had been rejected. And he actually murdered her in front of Jesse and McLaughlin, her best friend, and then roped her into it and incriminated her. So she actually was given the death penalty, which was later commuted based on a letter that came out afterwards from her lawyers, etc., with a bit of an explanation. Then 1865, you've got Dr. Edward William Pritchard, who murdered his wife and his mother-in-law. Literally within a month of each other, he'd been having a dalliance with one of the servant girls and had been caught in a kind of compromising situation by his wife. So he offed his wife and his mother-in-law. He was actually the last person to be publicly hanged in Glasgow. And because shortly after they made it so that people were hanged within the prisons. And then the final case is that Quite a wee bit later, it's 1908, and it's Oscar Slater for the death of Marion Gilchrist. She was killed in a home invasion. 
her servant had left for a mere 10, 15 minutes to obtain a newspaper. And in that space of time, a man made entry into the house, killed Marion Gilchrist, who lived alone as a wealthy old lady, just living by her own means. He stole almost nothing, though, which was the surprising thing. A crescent diamond brooch was the only thing said to be missing. And the servant girl came back. One of the downstairs neighbours had come up as well because he'd heard banging on the floor. And so they're both at the door. The servant girl enters and the man who had made entry and had killed her actually comes out past them. And the moment he's past them, he runs down the stairs. The neighbour goes after him and fails to catch up with him. So the police ended up actually going over to America to uh, arrest Oscar Slater in New York. He was arrested on his landing off. Uh, the ship, I think it was Lusitania he went over on, uh, he was arrested on disembarking at New York, purely just because he had a bit of a twisted nose, and that's what they got him on. Uh, he also, <laughs> he had pawned a crescent diamond brooch, but it had been his brooch, it was it was found to have been his, so there's no connection to him in the murder ultimately, but he was condemned to hang for it. That was later commuted mostly by the efforts of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he managed to, to get Oscar Slater commuted to just a penal servitude. So he spent almost 20 years in Peterhead Prison doing hard manual labour. So all of this is available where? Well, it's all available for free on the site. The okay. readings are free from our YouTube channel, just Random Scottish History on YouTube. And all the books are available on Amazon to, to buy if you really like just having a hard copy of a thing. Plus the hard copies have Alex's artwork throughout, which makes him kind of special. Like he's an excellent artist. Yeah. So so the material that's online does not have the illustrations, but the stuff the hardback that you buy does. Yeah. The readings for the Square Mile murders on YouTube have Alex's artwork okay. throughout as well. But for the website, just at rsh.scot, it's really just the information you've got and okay. you don't have much of the illustrations. Now, what do you see as the future of RSH, Scott? What would I you know like where to the be wind doing? blows me, man. Like, honestly, our, the Treaty of Union articles was born out of a suggestion by David Taylor for correspondence from unionists that had a grievance with the union. We also did the Scottish Railway incident, which is going to take people from 1900 to 1915 in a series of four books. Uh, volume one's out already. Volume two just about ready to go. And... That, that was actually born of a patron who'd come up to collect their copy of the Treaty of Union articles and had asked if I could do a wee bit of research to find out about the death of one of his uh, ancestors on the railway lines down at Tambus Lang. So in trying to find that one incident, I came across so many and I thought people are going to be really interested in this. The complete lack of health and safety is crazy. And Alex and me have also done readings for the first year in 1900. They're also available on YouTube. But those are not for the faint of heart. I'm going to put that out there. There are some really awful things and yeah. terrible descriptions of injuries and what. Oh, so uh, the railway incidents, uh, it's a niche topic. And the Glasgow Square Mile murders, it was a topic that I just picked because I thought it would be a good one for Halloween last year. <laughs> I didn't even <laughs> expect it to become a publication, but I ended up with so much information that I was like, I'll just get out there in a bit. I just go where the, it's why it's random Scottish history. Okay. I don't even though the next book I'll pull out to upload to the site. Well, here's a thought for what it's worth. Uh, I'm sure you'll get better suggestions than this, but I read a, a, a great book about the radical, the, the, the radical uprising in 1820 with, with, the, with the weavers yeah. who put together and then they were betrayed by their, some erstwhile colleagues who grassed on them, uh, and then they were all deported to Australia, I guess. If you haven't already covered that, I think that might be interesting to people too. Yeah. I found it insightful that a lot of these genuine efforts to address genuine problems were frustrated by fifth columnists or spies. Yeah. You know, we're accustomed to thinking of that in modern terms, and we expect that, but I didn't quite understand that this was spies were active in 1820 but I should have done because one of the spies who was involved in the act of union was Daniel Defoe. <laughs> there's always going to be bad actors like no matter what group you're in or what your goal is there's always going to be bad actors especially yeah. if it's a particularly populist movement. I think the Chartists 
of the, the 19th century had the same kind of issues as you're describing there, yeah. um, with people trying to subvert the movement. Uh, and we had that ourselves with uh, Lord Hamilton at the Treaty of Union. He made out like he was on side, that he wanted the best for Scotland, etc., that he would absolutely take the lead and he would get us the best deal. And then on the day, he claimed toothache and refused to turn up. So he was dragged there, literally made to turn up, at which point he just went, right, OK, so who's taking the lead on this? It's like, you said you would. What are you talking about? And he completely just, he, he really helped to screw Scotland. Yeah. But there's bad actors in every movement. Uh, you just have to rise beyond them. The moment you realise a person isn't acting in the interest they say they are, out that person and just keep on going, you know. I think yeah. that's the key. Maybe there's a lesson there in all, you know, from, from that information, looking at the present day, you've got a whole raft of different groups who are in favour of independence. And maybe the lesson we learned from the past, from history, because history always teaches you, if you care to listen, is that you can have your disagreements and there's nothing unhealthy about that. When it comes time for action, you, you pretty much need to act united. Otherwise, you're, you're effectively yeah. scoring open goals all over the place. Yeah, there needs to be a, a group that takes the lead. When people make it a cult of personality with one person that's, that's in control of everything, it, it's far easier to fail than yeah. if a group is in control of whatever movement. Yeah. Because then if there's bad actors, that, that guy can be ousted, but it's not detrimental because there are other people of the same mind that have already carried yeah. whatever yeah. movement forward, you know. Well, we were talking earlier about the United States and the, and the birth of the United States and how the, the major players there, the major actors there, were all sort of fighting amongst themselves, even though they'd just gone through a war of independence <laughs> yeah. as soon as it was over. I mean, Alexander Hamilton ended up being shot in a duel by the vice president. I mean, for God's sake, what's going on, guys? You know? <laughs> the, the moral of that story is just people are never going to be happy. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you get what exactly. you want, there's going to be another thing to want. You know? <laughs> I want to share with you a couple of comments, the three that have come in. Donald MacDonald has said, I just bought your book, Scotland and Union, Jenny. So looking forward to reading it. Thank uh, you so much. Derek Kerr says, very insightful stuff tonight. Heather Saxton says, a wee thank you to use. People are engaged with what you've been saying, Jenny. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a further underline that what you're doing is actually helping people. And, you know, that, that's the best we can do in life. You, you, you say to people, you know, here I am, I'm doing this, all this heavy lifting. All I want from you is some appreciation that it's, it's time. You know, good, decent feedback, essentially. If one person wants to read a thing I've put out, then it's been worth it. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Like if, if there's at least one person reading what I put out there, then it's worth it for that one person. You know? Yeah. We've talked about the radical rising. Uh, is there any, anything else that you feel that people have mentioned to you you're thinking maybe a little bit seriously about spending some time on? Not yet. I haven't decided on the next big project. Oh, yet. there you are, folks. What better opportunity? Have you had? If you found this, as Derek has said, insightful, if you found it to be helpful, as, as Donald has said, and also as uh, Heather has said, here's your opportunity. People are free to contact me. I answer all of, all of the queries and comments that I get sent from, yeah. from rsh.scot. There you are. I'm folks. very contactable on Twitter. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that can be a double edged sword, I suppose, but. No, no, but seriously, seriously, the key message here, it seems to me, is here is somebody doing some stuff that I suspect many of you tonight are thinking, gracious, I wish I had some information in this regard. Here is somebody who's done this heavy lifting for you, materials available for you, may not cost you a great deal or nothing at all, and uh, Jenny is receptive to, to your input. Compare that with the BBC. If you tried to I get any of this material on the BBC, do you know how far you would get? <laughs> Nowhere. And she's not got a budget of 300 million a year, by the way. No budget. And neither yeah, you are, no budget at all, and neither do we. So if you genuinely feel 
that this is important to you. Here's an opportunity for you to exercise, to act. It's open to you. You can disregard my thoughts and comments as you wish. But I would strongly commend what Jenny has been saying tonight because it's helpful. You, it's from history we learn. If, what is the old cliche? If you don't learn from history, you're condemned to relive it. And in a way, you've right. demonstrated that tonight. You've shown the number of ways that we're reliving it because somewhere on the line, somebody didn't take the appropriate action. What, what is funny, though, is that it's the arguments, the arguments that we use today for independence, to promote independence, are the arguments that the pro-unionist Scottish nationalists were already using in the 18th and 19th oh, centuries. Fantastic. We're just using the same arguments again in the understanding that, well, our grievances haven't been redressed. The union still isn't equal. We're still, you know, the underdog. So it's time just to end it now. So we're using the same argument now to end the union that were formerly used for home rule. Now, wouldn't that be truly ironic, folks, if the arguments that you started using <laughs> for independence are actually based on pro-union? The fact. <laughs> the fact, honestly. That, You'll notice that it's the of union articles. It's totally eye-opening. It's crazy that we're just doing the same thing again, uh, just with a different, slightly different perspective, you know. Uh, let me just say, uh, in conclusion, if, if I may, a big thank you to all of you and, of course, to Jenny, for being, as, as our, our commenter said tonight, insightful. Uh, big thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks again. Uh, and remember, it's been another great day for British democracy. Boris Johnson, who by all accounts is under threat and indeed may not be the Prime Minister soon, has criticised Ian Blackford's weight. The country's falling apart and he's worried about somebody's weight. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe. Please take care. Oh, and by the way, support the crowdfunder please, so we can keep on doing what we're doing tonight. Thank you. Good night. And if you'd like to hear more Scottish history that you perhaps weren't taught in school on Indie Live Radio on a Tuesday at 11 o'clock, you can hear our random Scottish history show, which has contributions from Jenny Eels, who you've just been listening to, and also Stuart McCarty, who does the Radical Scottish History podcast. So that's 11 o'clock on Tuesdays on Indie Live Radio.